Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. All right, friends. Hello. Welcome back. Another episode of the New Evangelicals podcast coming your way. I'm talking fast because I'm so amped up. Let me slow down. Welcome to the show. Okay. On this episode, I have Jessica Malati Rivera, who is a COVID and um, virus epidemiologist expert. Okay, she's on the she's on the leading front lines of COVID, of vaccine. She's been doing this way before COVID was a thing. I brought her on to talk about everything COVID. We talked about what is COVID? Why is it not like the flu or the cold? We talked about the Omicron variant. We talked about the death tolls. We talked about how do you track COVID deaths compared to flu deaths? We talked about the vaccine. This is the podcast episode for you. If you are someone who has questions about COVID and the vaccines and their effectiveness, et cetera. So I really appreciate Jessica coming on to have this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I've been wanting to get someone on for a long time like this, and this is someone that I was honored to have on the show. That being said, thank you to everyone who supports the work that we do. The reason why I'm able to make these episodes happen so quick, we recorded this on a Wednesday, it's out Monday, is because I'm able to do this work full time because of your generosity. So if you're able to support us financially, it would mean so much. You can click on the link in the show notes or on the um, the YouTube comment section, like the description, and you can donate there. It would mean so much. It keeps us going. It allows us to get this information out to you. Of course, if you can't do that, we totally get it. If you can share the podcast, give us a rating, a review, tell a friend, that would mean so much. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my episode. Hope you enjoy it. All right. So this interview, we're recording on a Wednesday. We're actually going to put it out next Monday. So we're doing this one real quick because it's a very important topic. So I got to say, I am truly honored to have Jessica Malati Rivera 
on the podcast. I've been following your Instagram for a while, um, and I just want to I just want to read a little bit about about who Jessica is for the audience to understand the gravity of of, <laughs> of, of who we're talking to. So, Jessica Malati Rivera is an infectious disease epidemiologist and science communicator. She earned her MS in emerging infectious diseases from the Georgetown School of Medicine, and has dedicated the last fifteen years of her career to disease surveillance research, public health policy, and vaccine advocacy. Her specialty is in translating complex scientific concepts into impactful, judgment-free, and accessible inf- information for a diverse audience. Okay, now I could go on, but I hopefully that gives the audience a sense of the weight that you, that I we have someone on the podcast, friends, who is an expert in, I don't know, something that's happening right now. It's a pandemic called COVID-19. So Jessica, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah, absolutely. I want to start here. You know, I kind of read a a little bit of your background, but why don't you kind of give the audience, if you want, just a little bit of your story. Who is Jessica? How did you get into this line of work? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, it's it's a funny story uh, and had many twists and turns um, into where I've landed now. But I was a pre-med, you know, very pro-science undergrad at USC I thought I was going to go to medical school and I took a health and human rights class that kind of derailed me much to my parents' dismay (laughs) and got very involved uh, in public health and public health education. So I decided to work in nonprofit world stuff doing like, you know, health equity and human rights, did that for a few years and decided to go to graduate school a few years after that and got involved um, with this research group at Georgetown that did biosurveillance, essentially tracking emerging infectious disease outbreaks so that we could provide early indicators and warnings for pandemics. We were specifically trying to predict pandemics. Like this is very much on the nose for me. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Like my Super Bowl that I've been preparing for my whole career. Right. But while I was in this research group, it was a team of analysts and, and our analyst floor was tracking open source media in about 50 languages. I was tracking them in um, English, Arabic, and Spanish and translating them into these summaries. Our audience was largely government, mostly intelligence and health um, to basically see what was happening in animal species, human human populations, and even plants. Um, Our actually detected the emergence of the 2009 H1N1 pandemic when we started seeing these indicators of a bunch of pigs getting sick and a pig farm in Mexico and farmers getting sick. And all those pieces of the puzzle helped us predict to a degree of certainty that there was an emerging threat happening. So um, that has, that was kind of the probably specific foundation of like my work in disease surveillance and pandemic analysis pandemic modeling and did that for a number of years and then kind of stayed in the infectious disease, vaccine preventable illnesses research world for many years after that. Um, Since COVID-19 hit, I was involved with the COVID tracking project, which was uh, an offshoot of the Atlantic, where I led their science communication efforts and basically helped translate everything from the emerging data to the data trends to anything in the epi space. Um, I take a lot of joy in that. Uh, It's kind of like speaking another language. Mm. and uh, helping people have meaningful insights from that because the headlines are overwhelming and kind of dense um, has been something that I've been doing since day one. Like I got an email on December 31st, 2019 about COVID, about this this pneumonia-like illness in Wuhan. And I was like, oh gosh, this could be something. And here we are. Wow. Okay. So I feel like what you're telling me is that – 
before the, the the general population like myself understood what COVID was, there are people out there who are experts who are trying to always predict when the next one's going to come because pandemics have happened before. This is not yes. the first time in human history that we've that, that we've had a pandemic. Is that correct? That's correct. And when I was in graduate school, I remember like my friends would be like, so what are you stressed out about? And I would always say, you know, a respiratory disease that causes a global pandemic. And that wasn't, you know, clairvoyant. That wasn't <laughs> right. like, you know, that was anybody in this space knew that it was a matter of when, not if, mm. that pandemics happen in these kinds of cycles. It's not sinister. It is just because of our clashing ecosystems, right? We have to we have to cohabitate with different species on this planet. And if we don't do it great, including doing things that encroach on forests and different populations or how much we consume animals and animal products, it can sometimes expedite the process and the exposure to pathogens that humans don't have any immunity to. So we always kind of thought it's only a matter of time before there's another spillover event, which is a Mm. disease that originates from another host, like an animal species and affects humans. And um, what the fact that it happened, the fact that it's a coronavirus origin, none of those things are surprising to us. Hmm. Okay. So let's do this. Okay. Um, as Michael Scott from the office would say, explain it to me like I'm five. Okay. Because <laughs> this is obviously for people like myself who are not in this space professionally, it can be overwhelming. Like you said, headlines are very overwhelming. Everyone seems to have an opinion and to prove that, that, that the data is this or that everyone can make those arguments. Let's just start here. What actually is COVID? Like, is this a viral thing, a bacterial thing? What's the difference, et cetera? Yeah, so COVID-19 is the name of the, of the disease caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is a coronavirus. It is different than SARS-1. That is why it's SARS-2, essentially. It is from the coronavirus family, which is a viral family of diseases. There are a number of coronaviruses that we have experience with. The MERS outbreak that happened was a coronavirus. SARS-1 was a coronavirus. And many, many coronaviruses are ones that we've all had before because coronaviruses are kind of most infamous for causing the common cold. They're very benign in most cases. SARS-CoV-2 is a new virus that originated from an animal species. It's still not precisely known, but it's very likely that it happened in with some sort of connection to bats. Bats are kind of these disease carrying flying rodents and, you know, have this incredible ability to transmit diseases, but not be affected by them. Must be nice. Um, Must be nice. Right. (laughs) So it's, it it could have been a spillover from, you know, the pangolin to the bat to the human. It could have been bat to human. We're not exactly sure what the index, you know, origin of it is, but viruses evolve and viruses evolve through a process called mutations, right? So there was a mutation that happened that made it so that humans could also be affected by it. So that when the virus affected a human, it could attach to human cells. And you've probably heard the word mutation a lot. Mutations are why we have now variants of SARS-CoV-2, the original wild type virus. Now mutations sounds more sinister than it is, but mutations are kind of like typos. So as a virus makes copies of itself, Sometimes it's an imperfect process and it kind of messes up and it makes these like mistakes, these mutations. An accumulation of those mistakes can change how the virus behaves. So at some point, mutations happened to change it from an animal disease to a human disease. And it continues to have more mutations as it replicates in different people's bodies. And then we get offshoots of that or these variants, these kind of you know, versions of SARS-CoV-2 that are still the same virus, but have some differences. 
Okay, that's helpful um, to understand that. And I think it's also important for the audience because a lot of us grew up in evangelical spaces. When we hear terms like mutation or evolve, right, we kind of been programmed to think liberal, atheist, like, you know, whatever. Honestly, I, I know for some yeah. people that might be kind of silly who are, didn't grow up that way, right? But for me, you're yeah. like mutation, evolve. I'm like, Tim, like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I guess put away that that alarm in the back of your head because this is just how, how, how this stuff works in this this realm, things change. They, how do you want to call it? There, it's not the same thing it was when it went, when when it, I guess was first birthed into existence. Is that kind of the idea behind right. it? Okay, right. And this evolution is we're talking like laser speed evolution, right? We're not talking about over you know eons of time. We're right. talking about a family tree. Uh, if, if evolution is a triggering word for you, think of it as like families evolve or grow or yes. propagate or whatever the word is in a linear function typically. Now yeah. I will say it has been pretty linear with alpha, beta, and delta. Omicron, however, was kind of its own little branch that offshooted on its own. Um, either way, it's because there is, you You can look at um, genomic sequencing like a family tree. There is this, you know, big papa, the, the original wild type, and then the little kids kind of come out as more of the virus, uh, Evolves, air quotes. Yes. <laughs> and we're not talking about, you know, like X-Men evolution here where we all get superpowers, unfortunately, but maybe we'll no. say. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess one of my questions I want to ask you is, is why does it seem like the medical community, CDC, recommends social distancing and mask wearing? Why is that important? You know, again, you you hear a lot of things. And if you're on Twitter, on social media, it feels like everyone has an opinion. One person says masks are not effective at all. One person says it's the absolute, you know, uh, silver bullet. So why... Do, does the CDC recommend that we mask up um, and that we socially distance? What's the benefit of that? Yeah. So SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19, is a respiratory virus, which means that it affects the cells in our respiratory system that are in our nose, in our mouths, and in our throat. So the reason why we recommend things like masking is to produce droplet spread from person to person. Droplets is you know, gross, but they come out of your nose when you sneeze and your mouth, when you sneeze and talk and sing and do anything kind of like, uh, you know, loud, um, and masks can help protect the person you are with and also protect you as the wearer from other people's droplets. Um, the reason why we recommend social distancing or physical distancing is because typically this is a rough estimate. Sure. Those droplets can transmit about six feet. It's not like something magical happens that there's a force field or something at seven feet and like <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 dies. It's right. typically a person's expulsion of droplets is around six feet. And so keeping your distance can also reduce your risk. I, th I think we have to remind folks that these are all tools that are imperfect, but when done in conjunction with each other, they can create a healthier system for you. It is not about disease elimination or, or risk elimination for that matter. It's about re risk reduction. And these are all ways to help reduce that risk. Now, what about when people, I've heard people say that, you know, well, the masks aren't effective because the virus is actually small enough to pass through the masks. So it's totally useless. It makes no sense. How do you respond to that? Yeah. So that's not true. Right. I mean, and, and not all masks are created equal either. Mm. Um, so there is a hierarchy in mask quality with N95s respirators typically, you know, used in the medical community as being the top most effective way to reduce the transmission of those particles. Um, N95 means that like 95% of those tiny particles are, you know, 
prohibited or, or prevented from uh, crossing that physical barrier. Um, and the size of the virus is not what's actually transmitting, right? It's the droplet. The virus is in the droplet and the droplets are big. It's what you spit out of your mouth. So we're not talking about something that needs to be a microfilter in that mm. regard. It's something that's going to wait to stop something on a microorganism level or micro droplet level. It's droplets, physical droplets from our body. And so, like I mentioned, there's a ranking, right? So N95 being top primarily used in healthcare settings and then KN95s which is the Chinese version of a NIOSH approved N95 then there's the KF94 which is equivalent to KN95 but made manufactured in Korea and up to their standards and then you have things like surgical masks which are great because they're multi-layered and then you have cloth masks which range from absolute garbage to mm. pretty good depending on how you're wearing it and what it's made of um, so not all masks are created equal not all masks work in all settings you've probably seen a lot of headlines saying wear the best mask you can pre like preferably something above a, K a K KN95 or above and that's because Omicron is so transmissible that's that's why we're saying that something yeah. like that. That makes sense. Um, okay, so that, that's helpful. So one thing I wanted to get into is what makes something a, a pandemic just compared to like the normal flu or cold season, right? Again, another critique I hear often, oh, it's just like the flu. It's just a common cold. The, 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 the mortality rate is super low. So why is this a pandemic compared to what would be like a normal cold or flu season? Yeah, so... There is a degree of seasonality to the flu, right? There are peaks of flu season, which is why we have the flu season and vaccine related to it, which kind of kicks off around October-ish and right. runs through the spring. And then it kind of dies down. It's not that there are zero cases of flu that can happen in the spring and summer. It's just that it's very seasonal, right? Mm. That is a flu epidemic, right? It happens in localized places. It's not always like a destabilizing event. Uh, we've had flu pandemics. H1N1 in 2009 was a pandemic. And mm. pandemic, you think about the origin of the word pan means global. So pandemic means that there are multiple outbreaks, multiple epidemics happening on a global level, affecting multiple populations at the same time. Mm. Now, like I mentioned, we've had flu pandemics in the past. Flu is not impossible from becoming a pandemic. Pandemic just means kind of the degree to which there are outbreaks that are caused by a destabilizing virus or you know pathogen that is affecting many, many populations at the same time. Now, what makes COVID-19 a pandemic is precisely that. It is affecting the whole world. It is a respiratory virus that is spreading very easily that not a single country has been completely immune to. Mm, um, yeah. And uh, to compare it to the flu is at this point should become very, very obvious that it's not. The flu does not crumble our healthcare system. The flu does not cause 200, 300% capacity surges in ERs. The flu does not cause 900,000 deaths in two years. Right. So we need to be very, very careful and, and kind of uh, emotionally competent to kind mm. of say things like, it's just this. Um, you know, flu is typically really bad for kids. Thankfully, COVID-19 isn't as bad, but to say that it's not bad for kids is also incredibly insensitive. So it's, it's scientifically and even just statistically speaking, not comparable whatsoever. Um, and if we saw the degree of seasonality that we do with flu, with COVID-19, we wouldn't be entering year three here. With right. 
Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I um, I did uh, you know some Google research myself. Not that I'm an expert or anything, but you know, I was looking up like like just CDC numbers for the flu. I think in 27 through 2018, they said that there's about 48 million cases of the flu. About 50,000 deaths is what they said yeah. on their site. You know, but with COVID, we've had 50 million cases, 800 almost now a million deaths, and yeah. it's like just that alone should tell you what you need to know, right? But again, one of the one of the critiques I hear from people is, oh, well, they're counting deaths differently. With COVID, right? So, so the flu way, you know, the flu deaths are different than COVID deaths. So, go ahead, break this down for us. Explain to us how do we count an actual COVID death, and is yeah. it consistent with how we normally count deaths related to some kind of yeah. virus? Yeah, I, I think that it's a very insincere claim hmm. to say that deaths are inflated, especially as somebody who worked on tracking all of the COVID metrics. We were counting tests, hospitalizations, cases, and deaths in all 56 states and jurisdictions. We are very familiar with how death certificates are reported and how death reports are submitted to the state health departments and to the CDC. Yeah. And there's nothing sinister about it. In fact, I will say what is sinister is the fact that what we know now as a death count is an undercount. Mm. There are more people that have died of COVID that have not been properly uh, processed or recorded for a variety of reasons. So we're talking about a number that is far, far less. I don't know if you saw, there was recently a headline that said something about 5 million global deaths from COVID-19, but the actual range is closer to like 10 to 12 million deaths worldwide. Wow which is devastating, right? And I will say that after spending a lot of time with this data and talking to many physicians and pathologists who work specifically with people's deaths and how they died, death is not always a single you know, thing. It's not like a linear thing where it's just, you died of one thing. It's usually a cascade of consequences, right? Which I think is often manipulated by folks who are COVID deniers, Mm. but on a death certificate, it is very rarely one thing. Mm. Even if you have cancer, right? A person who dies of cancer may have died of heart failure because their body gave out after years of chemotherapy because the, the cancer was in the heart because of a variety of reasons, right? It's not always one thing. In fact, it's actually more dangerous uh, to think of it just being one thing. There was a controversy early in the pandemic. I remember this whole claim, you probably remember it, where only 6% of the deaths were actually caused by COVID. Oh, yeah. Misreading of a chart. This chart, I feel very passionately about data visualization and bad data viz gets me so riled up because it's so preventable. You could just caveat your data and just put it legend for F's sake. So they, um, there was a chart that should have read 100% of these deaths are caused by COVID-19. Only 6% of them had one field on their death certificate filled out as COVID-19. All the rest of them had COVID-19 and a bunch of other things. Right. Now, of course, that makes people think, well, it's because they were obese. It's because they had all these comorbidities. Death is death. And COVID caused those deaths to happen prematurely regardless of what they also had. If they didn't get COVID, they'd be alive today. And that is the end story. Is it kind of like saying that, that, that for, for many of these cases, COVID was the first domino that kind of pushed everything else over. Without that first domino, you wouldn't have those other things lined up. Is, is that kind of the, the visual that, 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 that we can Or the last domino. The last domino. The yeah. last domino, right? They could have had a number of issues that were managed that were not so greatly managed that just needed one last trigger and the trigger was COVID. Um, it could have been COVID causing pneumonia, which caused lung failure, which caused death. Like right. it's never just one thing because our bodies are complex systems. Right. And sometimes it's a number of systems, organs, brain function, 
function, blood function that fail that cause a person to die. And I think we also have to acknowledge too that not just the deaths, but like the long-term effects of COVID. I mean, I have someone in my life who I know who, um, thank God, is coming out, but was on a ventilator, uh, was on ECMO for for a very long time, I think 75 days, and he's going to need a lung transplant, you know, because his lungs are are not there anymore. But, and thankfully he's coming out of it, but that that is a long-term, yeah, he's not going to count as a death, thank God. But as far as his life being changed forever, I mean, a hundred percent. So I'm sure we're seeing a lot of those cases that we don't even talk about also happening as well. Yes. In fact, it's, you know, as somebody in public health who has measured things like outcomes of diseases, it's so, so frustrating to simplify outcomes as just, did you die or did you not? Um, Morbidity, not just mortality Mm. is a huge outcome that we have to consider when it comes to infectious disease outbreaks or even chronic illnesses. Morbidity can include things like disability. It can include things like long COVID. It can include things like the, you know, the psychosis and even the mental health trauma of this pandemic. Um, It's so much more than just, did you die or not? And we, it's a rough, rough, and a singular data point to say the disease was so bad, it caused this many people to die when we don't even know the full extent of long COVID. There are some people who have a couple symptoms, maybe it's altered sense of smell and taste. Some people have chronic ringing in their ears. Some people have cardiovascular issues and neurological issues that are still being diagnosed and continue to destabilize their lives and cause long-term disability. The the ways in which this virus is affecting our bodies and even are affecting the ways in which we talk about its effect on our bodies, we will be studying for many, many years. Hmm. Okay. That's helpful. In your experience and in the data that you've seen, what is the relationship to um, people's either long-term effects or or death compared to their access to, to healthcare? How how is that connection? Are you seeing that happen in the U.S.? You know, I've heard things like like COVID's really affected specifically minority groups because of, yep. of their lack of access. Is is that a thing that that you're seeing in the data? Absolutely. So while we were at the COVID tracking project, we had a tracker within that tracker for race and ethnicity. Now, race and ethnicity data has always been terrible in this country because we've never been able to categorize people correctly. Mm. Um, and that is because we rely on, you know, very, very flawed categories designed by the U.S. Census, which has a lot of like racist and generalizing biases in it. Um, now, and we also know that things like zip code are one of the largest indicators of public health outcomes that you can often say there are certain demographics in certain zip codes that have less access, like you said, to things like healthcare or doctors who are believable and trustworthy or Uh. in the context of COVID testing or vaccines, right? I remember when we were looking at some of the data in the middle of the pandemic and we were seeing these like, you know, revelations in the data, which were actually not that revealing. It was kind of a, once again, reaffirmation that healthcare here is a human rights issue and that racism is a public health emergency because you were seeing things like 2.5 X worse outcomes among communities of color compared to their white neighbors. And then you compare things like the testing numbers and their proximity to testing facilities. And you were like, this is unbelievable. When testing facilities would pop up, they would end up in white neighborhoods. They would end up in affluent neighborhoods. When the vaccines came up, there was a huge push to avoid 
avoid the kind of continuation of this issue that we call vaccine deserts, which are places in which it's hard to get a vaccine because of issues of transportation, issues of not having access to childcare, not having access to paid time off. All of those things are what we call like confounding factors. These are all, these are social determinants of health that further, you know, worsen the outcomes, morbidity and mortality for lots of populations because of, at the end of the day, a racist undertone in how we handle health and healthcare in the United States. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, so I, you know, um, I run the New Evangelicals. I, I created it. We have a great team here. I've been doing a lot of work the past year just to understand and, and do my best to start decolonizing myself a little bit because yeah. as a white male in this in the world, I'm one of the most privileged types. And as I read more and more history, and, and we interview all kinds of people, academics, scholars, you know, it's every topic we, we, we start out with, whether it's health or whatever, education or whatever, wealth, all roads lead back <laughs> To some form of racism. I, I, For some people, that really unsettles them. But the more I'm yeah. reading history that has the receipts, the more I'm like, no, it, it, it's pretty blatant. Like, it's pretty clear. I was even thinking with, when you said zip codes, I'm like, redlining. That is redlining. That is the yes. effects of redlining still yes. happening to us today. And yes. it, it just is mind-blowing how how much it's hidden um, under certain terms. Like, I don't see color, color blindness. But this has real effects on real people that when pandemics and other things, too, even outside of that, happen – they really get affected at a much more alarming rate, and our society isn't even willing to have the conversation about how that's a thing, which must be frustrating. Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, I remember uh, in 2020 when we were kind of in the peak of a lot of the uh, Black Lives Matters movements and the protests, and um, you know, I got a lot of flack from a lot of people who feel like oh, but I'm pro-science and I'm, and I'm not racist. But when I put a lot of stuff on Instagram saying, you know, racism is a public health crisis and mm. police brutality is a public health crisis, those things are uncomfortable truths for a lot of people to recognize. Yeah. But there are multiple epidemics that are happening at the same time right now. It mm. is not just COVID-19. It is this underlying condition that has created systems of medical mistrust not because of black and brown communities being not trusting. It's because they're the medical community is not trustworthy. Yes. And the reason why they're not trustworthy is because of years of trauma, years of neglect, years of experimentation on black and brown bodies, years of using people for the purpose of, you know, science for the sake of science. And I think that we have to recognize the fact that there are communities here who have never felt like the government is going to help them or going to care for them or going to have their interests in mind when designing things like even vaccine clinical trials. I remember when the trials were going out, there were lots of us in the space saying, we really, really hope that there's diverse participation, knowing that participating in one of these things is a leap of faith and a leap of trust because a lot of times black and brown people will look at medical providers and say, you have, you've not, you've not listened to me before. You know, we don't, you don't treat my pain the same way. You don't treat my, you know, my concerns the same way. As the trials began, it was not great. But by the time we got to phase three trials, I was pleasantly surprised to see that about 40% of participants were non-white, mm. which is a step in the right direction. But my God, we have so much work yeah. to do to fix the issue of racism in our healthcare because it continues to create these worse outcomes. Yeah. 
Um, I interviewed a few months ago now, Dr. Kia Moore, who's done a lot of work um, in Na- in Tennessee um, with trying to get people in her community, in the black community, to be more accepting of the vaccine. And we talked about how the reason why there's mistrust is, is for good reason. You know, the, the yes. uh, Tuskegee trials come to mind, et cetera, which is so ironic because so many white evangelicals <laughs> uh, think that, that that the vaccine is a complete farce, and yet they have no reason to be to, to believe that, you know. But and we'll, we're going to get into vaccines in a few minutes, I promise. I know that is one of the big elephants in the room for a lot of people who are listening. And we're going to get there really quick though. I want to get back, I want to get back to the healthcare thing. You know, I think a lot of people, and again, I'm not sure how much you know about my context, but I grew up in white evangelical America, you know, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. So American healthcare is great. doesn't need to be socialized because that's socialism and Marxism and whatever else. And you know, the more, the older I get, the more I read, the more I'm like, you know, the healthcare system is like really problematic in the U S how has that affected the COVID response? Like the healthcare system, was it ready for something like this? I mean, I don't, it seems like it wasn't, but it seems like no one who can make decisions on this level really want to have that that conversation about how like the U.S. healthcare system is doing terrible for being in the world's richest country. I mean, how much time do you have? Oh man, I'll, I'll buckle <laughs> up for this. Yeah, <laughs> we can talk about this for hours. I mean, yeah. when it comes to specifically pandemic preparedness, we were not prepared, and I say this as somebody who worked for many years on pandemic preparedness. The government used to prioritize this. And I'm not even going to get political here because it was prioritized under two different administrations when I was working in this space. Mm. So it's not like a blue and red issue. We Mm. previously prioritized things like tracking emerging infectious diseases in multiple populations. It was very well funded. But as the government governments, they love to save money. They love to not have to pay contractors and other universities and other groups to do the work for them. So they started, you know, zeroing out those contracts and brought the work inside, which we then learned atrophied into nothing. Mm. And I remember early on, a lot of these, you know, folks, the pundits and people who were commentators being like, why don't we have a forecasting like weather system for diseases? And I'm like, we did. We had it. We invested in it heavily. And then we decided that because public health is invisible when it works, that because we're not seeing all these threats happening as often as we're seeing other threats happening, like in, you know, wars and climate change or whatever, because it's not an imminent threat, we thought it was less of a priority. So it, it deeply hurts as somebody in public health to see this lack of prioritization, because if you wanted to compare it to other steps in preparedness, look at how much money we spend on the military. Look at how much money we have to spend on fire departments. We, I'm not saying to defund those things. Right. I am saying those are steps that we do so that we are not caught with our tail between our legs when an emergency actually happens. You don't build a fire station when a fire starts. You have it there just in case. Right. And I think this is a perfect example of how we don't consider public health as valuable as things like allopathic clinical care when it comes to medicine, because Mm. you just don't see it as much. And now this has been like one of the worst lessons learned in how we have to invest in public health. We cannot defund it. We cannot consider it less than um, other systems of preparedness. But I mean, even when it comes to the federal response after the fact, we watched it from day one. Yeah. We watched it from never prioritizing contact tracing. We watched it from literally till this day, never testing enough. We watched it from never prioritizing things like science communication when it comes to vaccines. I mean, 
vaccine hesitancy and misinformation about vaccines is not new. It's literally since the beginning of vaccines, like back in the ancient times of smallpox, there have been conspiracies about how vaccines originate and what they do to your bodies. We could have gotten ahead of that. And to hear even like the NIH director say, I wish we had known that the vaccine hesitancy thing would be such an issue. Like I could have flipped my desk when I heard that. Right. We knew this since day one. And so it's that, it's it's this kind of a cascade of failures that is why this has been one of the deadliest lessons for this country. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Even long weekends are short. So why spend a second of this one on a drink run? Instead, get drinks delivered right to your door with Drizzly. Drizzly is the easiest way to find the best prices on beer, wine, and spirits. So you can get back to lighting those totally legal fireworks. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Because the long weekend will be over before this ad is. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. And I'm thinking about even from Trump to Biden, um, and I'm thinking about how I think it was Jen Psaki, who's like the the, um, the spokesperson for the Biden admin, like making the joke, like, "What do you think we should do? Test everyone?" And then, and then, and now we're finally getting tests sent to us, right? But I'm thinking, I'm like, listen, I try not to be. I mean, I'm critical of Trump for evangelical reasons, but I try to understand that you know the government's big. A lot of things have to get moving, but like the fact that it took almost what are we two and a half years in to get free testing. I mean, I just spent eighty dollars on, on four tests from Amazon before all this. I even got the, uh, the the option to get a free test. I'm like, this can this is not a cheap thing to do. And no. like, I feel like you know, it took two and a half years for the federal government to say, here, I'm gonna we're gonna send you tests and maybe masks. I mean, it's crazy. I know. I was just this morning texting a colleague of mine, being like, how many times is Jen Psaki gonna have to scoff at a reporter and then two weeks later do exactly what they asked? Right. I mean, she's she scoffed at the mention of sending free tests. <laughs> she scoffed at the mention of sending high quality masks. Today, the, the Biden administration announced that they're gonna have 400 million N95 masks available at pharmacies across the world for everybody to receive. And you're like, does it really take a question and a passive aggressive response to like get you to listen? Right. We've been saying this for years. Meanwhile, Asia, countries in Asia and countries in Europe are probably looking at us like, bless your heart. We've been doing this since day one. Right, right, right. Totally. No, I think that, that that's a really fair point. And it, I think it just shows like how um, there's just work to do. You know, it's frustrating because we have this. It seems like there's this extra layer of nonsense, and that's the whole conspiracy world, which I want to kind of dive into for a little bit because um, a couple things. I remember when when everything first happened with COVID, there was the the YouTube documentary Plandemic that came out. Okay, I remember because I I, and I know that because. Not only friends of mine at the time, but pastors were sharing it from their Facebook feed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I was not doing new evangelicals work then, but I was still like very frustrated with Trump and very like, why are we fighting wearing masks? I mean, it makes sense. Then I'm seeing pastors post like legit nonsense, right? Like pure conspiracies. And it seems like the rise of pop level conspiracy theories, I know they've always been there, but it seems like this is really done so much more harm in a pandemic. Like it's really inflated and perhaps no greater point than the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing. So let's go into vaccines for a little bit. First off, can you, let's just start here. Let's start with one of the big elephants in the room. This vaccine was produced too quickly and therefore it's not safe. So whenever you hear that, how do you respond to that? 
I think that that from a from a person who's not been in this space with with the kind of proximity that I've had to this research, it is a very fair question to ask. Right. I don't make fun of the question. I don't think it's a dumb question. I think it's yes. a very fair question, which is why, again, had we been, you know, very proactive on our comms front, we could have preempted the doubt and skepticism from the very beginning. But I'll just go ahead and answer the question with how I've always answered it, which is we are so fortunate to have had decades of research. Think of it like a runway being paved for years and years and years to prepare for the plane to finally take off. Years of research in mRNA technology, in mRNA vaccine technology to get us to this point. It is not new in that regard. For years, even Moderna and the NIH was working on MERS research on creating specific vaccines for coronaviruses because we knew that coronaviruses have this kind of like ability to be very prolific, to spread really really quickly worldwide. And so we had this foundation, decades and decades of research, and something that Trump did, which was called Operation Warp Speed, terribly named, could have had a better name, but, you know, here we are. And what that did was create a system of fluidity in a process that usually is filled with red tape and bureaucracy. When people say things like, it usually takes five to 10 years to create a vaccine, absolutely, it used to. It used to because that's how much bureaucracy and financing issues and red tape scientists had to go through to continue to finance their research to go from phase one to phase three. What Operation Warp Speed did was provide a consistent stream of money to prevent that. Not to mention the fact that if you work in clinical research, sometimes people aren't like that excited about joining a clinical trial. There were people lining up all over the world Mm. to sign up for these trials. So there was no like incentivization needed. There was no like huge campaigns to get people to sign up. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. There was tons of money to keep it going. And one of the other things that's a huge barrier is the endpoints. So if you're doing a trial on a disease that is not disrupting the world or a condition that is not like destabilizing, you have to wait a long period of time to get to the endpoints. What I mean by endpoints are kind of like the goals or the objectives of the hypothesis, which is in the case of COVID-19, you needed to get this many infections happening in the context of the vaccine trial to see how many infections were severe, how many infections led to hospitalizations, and how many infections led to death. There were so many things that made this the kind of perfect opportunity for a well-oiled machine to be fully financed, to operate under the perfect conditions, to make it so that it happened, air quotes, fast. But it did not cut any corners. So... Is it fair to say, and tell me if I'm wrong, I can't believe, can't believe I'm going to say this, but is it fair to say that 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 when the government and the private sector work well together, this is what can actually happen? Like we get vaccines yes. out quickly, including, let, listen, I mean, I'm critical of Trump. Let's give credit where credit is due. You said Trump yeah. did Operation Warp Speed. That's a good thing. And to Trump's credit, and I have a lot of things I don't credit him for, but to his credit, he's very outspoken about getting vaccinated. He's very outspoken yes. about getting boosted. Yes. I mean, Candace Owens interviewed him and like she had to swallow her tongue when he said that. And she went yes. live later to say, I think he's just too old to understand. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, like I cannot believe this is happening. He so, doesn't read the news. Right, yeah. It's like, well, thank God like Trump is pro-vaccine. And I'm, I'm, I'm honestly thrilled to hear that because of his initiative, we're able to reap the benefits quickly of having the vaccine. So yeah. I, I, can you describe, again, in simple terms, that's one of your skills here, What what is an mRNA vaccine? It sounds close to DNA. Are we changing DNA here? Like, how does this work? 
Yeah. I, I first want to acknowledge what you said is absolutely true. Like this is the perfect example of like, think of it like a group project gone well. Yeah. Everybody does their part. Everything is being done and it's perfect collaboration. Like it was an ideal scenario in that regard. Um, now, when it comes to the specifics of mRNA technology and what the mRNA vaccine is, mRNA is a very specific a component that's already present in our bodies. It, we call it's called messenger RNA. And what it does is it sends a message to create specific proteins. That's like not just related to COVID-19 vaccines. Like that's what they do. Okay. mRNA in this context was the specific code on how to make the protein of just the spike. So you probably know how coronavirus looks, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, like a ball with a bunch of spikes. Right. Essentially what this is doing is creating this like cheat sheet telling your body, Hey, this is what the spike protein of this antigen, this virus looks like. If you see it, create antibodies to attach to it. So it doesn't enter your cells. It's like, think of it like a Snapchat message, a short lived message, a preview, like a mugshot of this is the bad guy. (laughs) Don't let him in. Right. Right. Yeah. The mRNA is so fragile. It's so, so fragile that it has to be encapsulated in this like lipid bilayer, this like fat bubble. Basically, that's just to get it to its final destination, which is in your cytoplasm to like go and tell the message and it degrades shortly after. Now, where is your DNA? If you remember from like high school biology, your DNA lives in your nucleus. The nucleus is this encapsulated part of your cell that has nothing to do with what's going on outside. Mm. The mRNA cannot even enter the nucleus where the DNA is. The mRNA is just sending this message in the cytoplasm, like kind of like space around it saying, Hey, antibodies, you know, do your thing. Hey, T cells and B cells do your thing. And then it degrades. Like the body basically digests it through ribosomes and it's gone within probably 48 hours. Mm. So the concern that it changes your DNA is literally impossible because it doesn't even enter the nucleus where the DNA is safely protected. The idea that it could cause anything long-term is literally impossible because it doesn't even last in your body very long. It's there sending a message and piecing out. (laughs) It's the, it's the pigeon, right? Messenger pigeon. Here you go. I'm out of here. I'm flying away. So, so, okay. So let's dig into this for a few minutes, if you don't mind, because this is really helpful. And again, I, like you said, I appreciate that you're, that you're willing to say, I get that there are questions. Questions are not bad. Okay. We all have questions. We don't, when we don't understand something, we have to ask questions about it. So the vaccine, um, it's, in my again, it's just my experience. Usually, when like like my my, my nineteen month old, when when he got his, his shots, he didn't have to get two shots, and it wasn't like an upkeep. It wasn't like, hey, you know, I'll come back in in a couple months and get maybe a booster shot. Why are we seeing the booster shots, the vaccine with 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 two initial shots compared to what I've experienced personally in in, in seeing my son getting vaccinated with other things and just one shot and you're done kind of thing? What's the difference there? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna were created in a two dose series and they were created as the first dose being the prime and the second dose being a boost. So prime is kind of like giving your body a quiz saying, Hey, here's what's up. Here's what to do. And the boost is like giving it the final exam. Okay. You've been primed. You've been given the lesson. Here's a reminder Mm. of what the antigen looks like. Do your thing. A booster dose has kind of always been in conversation about this because we knew that the pandemic was not going to end at the vaccines. It was going to slow and we wanted to increase it. Two things have to be in equilibrium for it to end, right? We need to have high vaccination and low transmission. We've never had 
either, unfortunately. Uh, Getting there slowly, but those things have just been so off balance that it makes it really, really difficult to kind of get to the finish line. So the two dose vaccine series was intended to do that prime boost. And we thought over time, whether it's because of variants or because the continued, you know, transmission being high, we might need to give the body another reminder of like, Hey, just so you know, this guy's still out here. J and J was a little bit different because J and J was intended to be a single dose. Um, the effectiveness over time proved to be not as great as the MRNA series. And so they recommended a second dose, AKA booster. Um, but when boosters came along, it was primarily because over time, um, some of the neutralizing antibodies that were triggered by the vaccine were fading. It was not significant to say it was no longer effective. You have to think about it. Like there's no reason for your body to be like in high activation mode the whole time. You don't want that, right? You want your body to just be aware and alerted. A booster is a small dose. Think of it like a reminder to be like, Hey, the threat is still out there. Here's some more, make some more antibodies, make some more B cells and T cells, just so that you're prepared. If you do have an infection. Now, the idea of it being like continuing is a misconception. We're not going to be just boosting forever. We're not going to boost our way out of this pandemic either. Mm. But when it comes to the fact that we are now in one of the worst surges where transmission is super high and the variant is causing a lot of breakthrough infections, a breakthrough infection does not mean vaccine failure. It's just another opportunity to prevent further transmission of the virus and to prevent further illnesses that can be prevented through vaccines. Okay. That's really helpful because, and, and I think we have to understand too, that, that, that whenever there's a variant, right, obviously it's a slightly different version of what the vaccine was maybe atten- originally created to prevent. Is that, is that kind of the case or is, that, of, is that not I how mean, it works? I mean, the vaccine's goal from the very beginning of the first clinical trial was to do two things, to keep you out of the hospital and to keep you alive. And the vaccines are still doing that. Now, getting a breakthrough infection with Omicron kind of sucks because especially if you haven't been boosted, it's been a while since your body had that reminder and you might feel pretty lousy. Statistically speaking, you're not going to be hospitalized or die, but it's not impossible, especially for those who are the most vulnerable, those who are immunocompromised, those who are, um, you know, elderly, those who have a lot of underlying conditions. So people love to bring up like Colin Powell who died. Colin Powell had multiple myeloma. I mean, that is a basically like a cancer of your immune system. Mm. He was at an extremely high risk of having a poor outcome, even though he's highly vaccinated or fully vaccinated. And that's because there was so much virus around him. So again, it's because of that balance that's been so off. Um, You know, when you think about the reason why you boost, it's, it's, it's just longevity. It's adding additional protection and we're not trying to prevent infections that's a nice to have. We're right. trying to prevent severe outcomes. Okay. I think that is such a million dollar point that we have to hone in on because I think people, however they get their news or whatever, we're under the impression right, that when I'm vaccinated, I am pretty much have this invisible force field around me where I'm just totally not able to either get sick or spread it. And that, like you said, from the beginning of, of developing the, the the vaccine was never the point. The point was to pretty much eradicate death and to keep you out of yes. the hospital, which statistically, yes. everything I've seen shows, even if you get Omicron, you know, you're really unlikely to virtually, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's highly unlikely that that, that, that you're going to die or end up in the hospital. So, so in that sense, the vaccine is doing its job. Is that correct? 
Exactly. Because, and I, and I think this is where, what kills me the most is that this desire for like an all or nothing reaction, that it has to be a hundred or zero. Right. And it was just never intended as such. There is no vaccine that is a hundred percent effective. In fact, preventing infections, like we've said from the very beginning, requires layers and layers of protection. It is a combination of things. We've used the Swiss cheese model multiple times about reducing risk of infection, not completely eliminating it because there's so much virus. So it's getting a vaccine. It's wearing a mask. It's practicing physical distancing. It's reducing your high-risk exposure and high-risk activity. It's staying away from people who are vulnerable. All those things are layers and layers and layers to reduce the risk of infection. And then if you get infected, which has been happening a lot, you're probably not going to die. Right. So let's talk about the Omicron variant. It seems like that thing has just been, I mean, it ripped through my friend's circle. My wife who's pregnant got sick. Thankfully, she's vaccinated and every, everyone's totally cool. Uh, we only had one one night where we were, we were a little concerned about maybe her going to the hospital, but she ended up pulling through no problem. But it seems like this variant is just ripping through the country. Um, but again, what I'm, here's what I'm hearing, right? Oh, it's not as severe. Thank God. So it's like a common cold again, you know, like, 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 like the, I guess the, maybe the death rate is lower. So what are you seeing? Give me some data on this. Is the Omicron variant as dangerous as like the typical COVID variant? Or, I mean, maybe, maybe Delta is a good way uh, to say it. Um, and, and are you seeing, um, you know, reduced deaths, et cetera, with Omicron? Yeah. I think we need to be very careful with how we compare things like severity okay. and what it actually means. I don't think it's, you know, a wrong question. I think that we should be asking that, but I think we have to remember all the things, including the fact that calling it mild, for instance, like simply calling Omicron mild is inaccurate in the sense that a mild virus doesn't cause infrastructure strain on our healthcare system. A mild virus does not cause crisis care triage policies to be enacted in hospitals across the country where they have to ration care and figure out who's least likely to die and they can wait the longest. Mm. That's not mild. Now, as far as how it affects the body, it seems that people are faring off pretty fine. I mean, it kind of, it sucks, right? Like you're still going to feel pretty lousy, she was out of it, but yeah. like, this is when it's maybe appropriate to say it kind of feels like the flu or it kind of feels like the cold. Now, getting it is not enough. It's not a good policy. Like that's not a strategy in public health to like, just get it and get it over with. But there's just so much of it. And Omicron, like I mentioned before, was not part of the linear evolution or offshoot of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It kind of like emerged on its own. And it's just so, so good at transmission. It could be for a number of reasons. It could be because people's viral load is high. It could be because people just are infectious for longer periods of time. Um, it could be because it just attaches to the cell receptors even better. It is just a more um, efficient version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, it is still the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It is still causing COVID-19. It is not a new virus. It is not a superbug. It is not Florona. It is not okay. like this combination of weird things that happened. It is the consequence, a sadly man-made consequence of having so many unvaccinated and under-vaccinated populations where the virus can just spread unchecked the more, like we talked about earlier, the more opportunities the virus has to make copies of itself, the more opportunities it can make mistakes, mutations, those mutations can cause a change in the virus to be like a variant. And uh. so we are not surprised at all that Omicron emerged. We're not surprised that it specifically probably emerged in under vaccinated populations. And that's why vaccine equity is a huge part of this. Yeah. We can get to the end of the pandemic, right? If we think about 
now that we're talking about boosters, getting first and second doses in most people. Like I can't even begin to entertain conversation about fourth doses because it is unfathomable to me knowing that half the world has yet to see their first doses. They're mm. desperate to. And so we can end this. We, we are prolonging the pandemic and we can end this pandemic if we are thinking about this as a pandemic, a global issue. But we are we we in America just love yeah, to yeah. be like America first, yeah, know, you know, know. And just like thinking about ourselves first here. But we exist in a whole global community, right. and our global community is hurting. Right, and we're also highly individualistic, right? So, with a lot of the arguments, yeah. well, if you if you want to wear a mask, feel free, but I don't have to. It's like that. That's not how this works. That's not how viruses transmit. You know, and no. it seems like the 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 hyper individualism, very self centeredness of the American culture in general is really only helping to spread the virus. Right? Because we don't know what it's like to think about other people and be slightly inconvenienced, aka wearing a mask, watching our social distancing. I mean, really, in the grand scheme of things, things that are just like really no brainers. Um, and it seems like it's really hurting. One last question I had, and then I'll, I'll get a few of, of your personal thoughts: vaccine versus herd immunity. I, I, I wanted to cover this. You know, again, I hear people say, "Well, I think herd immunity is the right way to go," which honestly, knowing that we have over close to a million deaths, just sounds so cruel. Like it just sounds ultimately like so dehumanizing and cruel. But I'm on a, on a scientific level, are people are you finding that herd immunity is just as strong as being vaccinated, vice versa? What are you seeing there? Well, there's a fundamental misunderstanding in what the term herd immunity means. In epidemiology, herd immunity is achieved through mass vaccination. <laughs> Checkmate. So, I mean, now that is not to say that there isn't immunity established through people getting infectious diseases. Like we are all, many of us probably listen to this, listening to this podcast and you and me, I'm assuming kids of the eighties where our parents sent us to school to get the chicken pox, because that was the MO back then. Like it was in before the varicella vaccine was derived, we were encouraged to get this virus because it meant lifelong immunity. Right. Now did it come at a cost? Yes. Getting chicken pox sucks. It increases your risk of having shingles in the future. And it's annoying. Like that shouldn't be a strategy. Right. Now we have a vaccine to prevent that kind of suffering from kids and for adults. All that to say, the primary goal to get to herd immunity is through vaccination because you create these physical dead ends where the virus cannot propagate itself through other hosts. Now, there is, I'm not denying the fact that people can have some sort of established immunity from natural infection. However, it is so variable. Like you cannot even compare. And there have been studies after studies. And I'm going to get people in my DMs about this all the time because there are some fringe studies that claim erroneously that it's somehow better or equal to vaccine-induced immunity. It is not. In fact, Omicron has been a trump card on that too, because Omicron is notorious for reinfection and doesn't care if we've been previously infected. It also kind of doesn't care if you've been vaccinated, but those who are vaccinated are much less likely to die mm. compared to those who are unvaccinated and with previous infection. Like people are missing that point that the vaccines are still doing their job in protecting people from the worst outcomes. But when it comes to natural immunity, you know, Joe Schmo could have like, and let's just use very crude numbers here, 10 antibodies. And like, Anne over here can have like 10 million. Because it's not standardized, we can't establish any sort of, you know, a, like known protection from that to say that if you've been infected or vaccinated, you're both safe. That's just not true. Reinfection from people who have had previous virus infections with COVID-19, with other variants, are at a much greater risk of reinfection, much greater risk of hospitalization, and a much greater risk of death. And so we cannot let, letting the virus rip through a community is 
like you said, inhumane, because it's at, at some point it becomes a numbers game. When we're seeing these numbers that are like 3x last January, 700, 800,000 cases per day, there is a percentage of those numbers that will always end up doing poorly, that will end up needing hospitalization. Right. And there's a percentage of that number that will end up dying. That ratio can be dramatically reduced through vaccination. Because if you look at any chart in the, any hospitalization chart across the country, it is skyrocketing. It's almost a vertical line when you look at those who are in the hospital who are unvaccinated yeah. compared to almost a straight line of those who are vaccinated or yeah. those who are vaccinated. How much does it bother you to see so much disinformation out there, especially from people who have a lot of sway in public opinion? Does it really just drive you crazy? It drives me crazy because for two reasons. One, it is deadly. It is causing people to make really terrible public health choices for themselves and for their communities and people around them. And two, I think it goes back to, and this is like where Sharon and I really go off talking about this. Um, <laughs> Get me in that group chat. I want in. <laughs> it, just, it just shows a fundamental misunderstandings of, of civics and of the actual law. Right. I feel like I have people screaming at me all the time about you're pro censorship, you're pro silencing and deplatforming. And you're like, well, if you actually looked at what I'm calling for, I'm calling for accountability here. And what we are protected from by the law in this amendment that is just so cherished by a lot of these people is that the government is not allowed to censor us. The government right. shall not create laws that limit our ability to say things for, in the spirit of free speech. I am not trying to say there should be, not be freedom of speech, but there is a responsibility in that you can't go and scream fire in a crowded theater right. in the same way that you can't just make up statistics, make up erroneous claims that are intended to incite fear and intended to incite people to make harmful choices. And then sometimes derail them and send them to some like weird website to buy some alternative medicine that has no clinical data to prove that it's effective. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, if you really want to follow the money, Follow this, the disinformation chains. No, I think you're right. I mean, I, I remember uh, uh, Jim Baker, the televangelist, was selling some some silver knot bullshit, and like he had a you know pretty much almost had a class action lawsuit against him for doing that. And I also you know I I, I keep pretty tapped in. And I see what Joe Rogan's doing and who he has on the po the podcast, and you know it just seems like he's consistently going down the the rabbit hole of of not really what it is. So there's a great book uh, called How Fascism Works by Jason Stanley. It's a great read, and he's a scholar. He talks about how how some of the the foundational principles of fascism is to, is to is not to ask questions but to really erode like the fundamental assumptions of, of how a society would function. And these yeah. questions aren't just innocent questions, right? Like they are eroding like like accepted norms that we know help people and they end up kind of flipping it on its head and saying, "Well, no, this person, the government just wants to control you. They just want they they just want to put you into some, you know, um, mass psychosis to just be become their agents yes. of, of doom. And, and yes. you're like, no, like, like that, that, that. Yeah, I guess you could see it that way, but there's no evidence of that. And when you have right. a large platform, there's a certain level of responsibility, right? And this is for anyone. This is for me. This is for you. This is for Sharon, Joe, whoever. We have a level of responsibility just to at least be ethical in how we present things um, based on what we know, right? Of course, science changes, things change, and we adapt to that clearly. But that's different than trying to undermine the very important work of vaccine efficacy and in, in social distancing yeah. that we know is saving lives. Well, and that's, that's kind of at the, at the basis of this, it's this, it's this idea that 
science then just becomes a opinion in which you can have varying opinions um, that you can have um, kind of different schools of thoughts and that data and evidence are up for debate. It's kind of like the death of both expertise and truth being at its core subjective. And there are known truths in science that have been well established through rigorous systems of checks and balances that we call the peer review process. Like part of the process of developing data that is reliable is is like repeating yourself. It's a very redundant field to be in. (laughs) You have an experiment and you keep doing it to get the same results, the same results, the same results. That reproducibility gives us confidence. It doesn't mean that there isn't gray. Science is kind of the perfect example of the infinite shades of gray, but some things have been well-established, specifically things like the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. Now, I will be the first to say, this does not mean zero risk. All things have risk. But when you come to the data and it becomes abundantly clear that the benefits outweigh the risk, then you can say with confidence that this is a public good, that it is safe, that it is effective. Now, I'm not here to be like living living in this binary world of like, it has to be all or nothing, zero or a hundred, no risk, uh, all risk. That's not science. And I think that that's, again, a fundamental misunderstanding of the scientific process of what scientific debate actually means and what showing your work is re- like, what, what's required of showing your work. Yeah. No, I think that's really great. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that the reason why the peer review process uh, happens is because if people have out their thoughts, it's reviewed. Okay, let's look at it. Let's take it seriously, right? Let's let's look at it on its own merits, and then the community can say no, like, or actually, maybe there's something here that that might change our direction, right? And so, if something is is not widely accepted in that community, there's probably a good reason for it, right? And I find that what happens is people on the fringes or people who maybe are in that world, like, like, like even pandemic, it was some person who was tied to, to, to some, I think she was somehow tied to, to, to Dr. Fauci and, you know, Judy yeah. And she used like that, that, that level of, of, Oh, I've been here to become that fringe. Therefore believe me, cause I'm also an expert person. But the reason yeah. why she's not there anymore is because she's been reviewed and found, you know, yeah. lacking. And so that's, I think where like the breakdown happens. Right. And I think that, I think it's important that we realize that. And unfortunately, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on this. I'll just say it. White evangelicals we know are, are unfortunately the highest religious group in America to resist vaccines, to not get vaccinated, to re, to, to not take COVID seriously which on my end is so damn frustrating when we claim to follow a Jesus that says, love your neighbor. And yes, it is loving your neighbor by wearing a mask and by getting vaccinated. It just is. It's how we reduce harm. And it's very frustrating, honestly. That's what drives, that's what I want to flip over tables all the time, you know, just one after another. (laughs) I mean, I share in your frustration. I grew up in an evangelical community. I grew up, you know, in a Christian home. And the amount of times I've said, man, what a missed opportunity for Christians to really lead here by example, to say, we're going to pick up our cross and this for our neighbors. We're going to use our bodies as a sacrifice, which which we're called to do, which we're called to love like Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for his neighbor. And I'm not telling anybody that taking a vaccine is laying down your life. Right. Something with your body as an act of service to care for your brothers and sisters around you. And I just can't believe the obstinance for the sake of what? religious freedom for the sake of what liberty, like, give me a break. Those are not biblical principles here that we should be prioritizing. Right. 
Not to mention that white evangelicals are the most privileged people to live in in human existence. I mean, you know, I'm sure you saw the big event, the Passion 2022 event, 65,000 people worshiping God, unmasked, you know, kill, you know, just overloading their area. I'm like, that's not how we do it. You know, that, that that you're missing the whole point of being, you know, a follower of Jesus, but you got to have your mega event, which again, it just, um, that's the stuff for, that's for me what keeps me up at night. That's why I, I make reels. That's why we are the new evangelicals. I know. Because it's just, it's very frustrating to see. And also, it's just, it's I think it's frustrating to see, like, how, unfortunately, evangelicals are on the forefront of, like, the, the conspiracies. They're on the forefront of yeah. not trusting the data. And it's like, guys, like, we should be leading the charge. We should be the first ones to mask up. We should, you know, and also, yeah. it is not persecution to, to have someone tell you, get the word a mask. That is not, it does, I, I think what it is, and I'll, this is my last thought, and then we'll end here, because, um, and I appreciate you, Jessica, for taking so much time, but it is the ultimate form of privilege to live in a society, right, like America, where we can get vaccinated for free while people yep. across the globe are literally dying to get it. And we yep. say, no, throw it away. It's evil. It's the mark of the beast. It, it, we can't take it while, while people are really dying. Like, it's just so unjust to have that happen. It drives me crazy. I, I feel all those feelings so deeply, especially because I, I know church leaders who've actually led their, excuse me, their communities astray in saying things like it's the mark of the beast or in saying yeah. things that like, you know, by having things like shelter in place orders early on when, when churches couldn't meet, uh, that they were looking at this and, and calling this some sort of like religious persecution and, and saying things to the degree of like, oh, well, we cease to be a church if we can't meet. And I'm just thinking, how incredibly American to say something like that. What about all the people in the other parts of the world who are actually cannot meet right. because of re legitimate religious persecution? Yes, like yes. that is to me, again, a very, very one of the millions of reasons why I think that the American church doesn't understand church. It is, it's, it's a business. It's a, it's a, you know, oftentimes by, by muscle memory and obligation practice, yep, like yep. I'm not dismissing church and the value of church. I, yep. I think it's great, yep. but what we have turned it into in the pandemic and what we are so threatened by for the sake of public health and caring for other neighbors, to me, it just shows a complete warped view of what was modeled in the book of acts. That's not what it was. They were hanging out in a home I, listen, talking, we becoming just, more like Jesus. This is our number two. I mean, here we go. But no, I mean, you're right. We, 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 the way we, we, we frame it is the evangelical industrial complex. You know, it is a corporate yep. entity that yep. that is totally corporatized in every way, shape, and form. And it, it's it centers the event over the community. And anyway, I, I will stop there because again, we're, we're we're now we're going into my territory. I'm like, oh, you know what? Here we go. But I, I'll stop there. You know, Jessica, I, I appreciate you making time to answer so many of these questions. I know you answer all the time. You answer them on Instagram, you know, you answer them on other social media. You've been on CNN. You've really been, you've been, you're out there. Um, yeah. and, and, um, and we appreciate you making time for our community. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Give us all of your channels. Yeah. So I think I'm probably most uh, reliable on Instagram. You can find me at, at Jessica Malati Rivera. I also tweet a bunch, a uh, bunch of data things. If you're interested in that at Jessica Malati um, and anything in between, I usually post links though on both of those platforms. If there's other stuff like this. Awesome. Well, Jessica, thanks for making the time. I'm sure we'll do it again. Yes. Thanks so much for having me.
Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list for me. 